0: This podcast is brought to you by its financial supporters on Venmo, PayPal, and Patreon. Zach, Breck, Jed, Tom, Alex, Christine, Jeff, William, Mark, Danny, Dave, Nick, Kelly, Ryan, Marta, Cam, Andy, Patty, Tim, Paul, Andrew, John, and Chris. Thank you for helping me to have these conversations and to create this content. Keep Talking exists to have conversations that might help to make a better society and a better culture. I believe that each guest has important information and stories to make public, and it's something that I want to share. The following is a conversation with Sarah Hayter. Sarah is an activist, an immigrant, an essayist, and the co-founder of Ex-Muslims of North America. During our conversation, Sarah talks about her journey to the U.S. from Pakistan, Western values, the Salman Rushdie fatwa, Charlie Abdo, freedom of speech in the Muslim world, the life and example of Ayan Hirsi Ali, the safety of Muslims who leave their religion, feminism and Islam, and the lack of legal equality for women in many Muslim countries. Sarah is committed to providing space and a community to former Muslims who have decided to leave their religion many of whom fear for their safety and have nowhere else to turn. I admire her commitment to her own conscience in deciding to go her own way, in creating her organization, in honoring, recognizing, and appreciating her own freedom, and in openly telling the truth, including criticizing Islam, despite its risks. She is a living testament to why our civilization matters, to the rights it bestows to all citizens, to the progress we have made, and to the hope America represents to the oppressed around the world. She is a reminder of our sacred inheritance. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Sarah Hayter. All right, Sarah Hayter. I have really been looking forward to this conversation for months since we first connected. Um, Welcome to the show. It's really great to meet you and good to have you on.
1: Great to be here, Dan. Thanks for having me.
0: My pleasure. Um, I want to start with your background. And I know we touched on the fact that we might be talking about your background before we started recording. My understanding is that you were, you were born in Karachi, Pakistan, and you now live in the U.S. and have for, for quite some time. We're going to talk a lot today about ideas and beliefs and culture. I would love to have the audience learn a little bit about your, I think, first roughly seven years of your life prior to coming to the U.S., what do you remember from that time in Karachi and Pakistan in general?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's like, um, all childhood memories. They're kind of, um, you know, they're fuzzy at the edges. Um, but I, what I remember, um, clearly uh, was being raised in a context that where, um, the West and America was such a foreign thing. I remember watching American shows and not understanding the language. um, Uh, And, you know, religiosity in Pakistan is just, it's just like the air you breathe, right? It's everywhere and you don't, you you take it for granted. Um, And it wasn't until I arrived in America that I realized what was different about Pakistan and being raised in Pakistan. So, you know, in my own internal understanding of, um, you know, my life, the moment that was um, really eye opening was. Was just just the first few months of coming to America and recognizing that this is also you know the world. This is also a way that people live, um, and kind of being shell shocked at first um, with the differences um, in Pakistan and in America. Um, but I was raised in a relatively liberal um, household, and I always use that term relatively, very carefully, and then and then and then go back and and make sure that people understand what that means in that um in my in my in my household, my parents were um, you know, practicing Shia Muslims. They raised me that way. Um, we took religion seriously in the way that many Muslims take religion very seriously. It, when I say relatively liberal, I mean relative to other Muslims and not to, um, you know, the average Christian or anybody really in the West, um, uh, because the kind of religiosity practiced here is very different, and the 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 scale <laughs> looks very different. Um, so the way that I was raised would be considered, I think, by most um, Westerners of you know, any, any religion practically, um, but especially, you know, Christians and, and, uh, as very conservative, (laughs) you know,
0: you said when, when you got here, I think the word you used was shell shocked. What, what about the experience of arriving in the U S as a little girl, if you remember was so markedly different from what, what your life and your culture had been like uh, previously in Pakistan?
1: I mean, it's hard to pinpoint, you know, one thing that was so different because everything is different. Right. I mean, they, the, the smells and sounds of, of the new country are different. The, you know, I noticed, um, very superficial things, um, like there was, there was so much green here, you know, in Pakistan, it's like, or at least in Karachi, it's just dirt, dirt roads and not a lot of grass and, um, and and I noticed that there weren't that many animals <laughs> except for in the home, cats and dogs. Mm-hmm. Um, but in Pakistan, they're just animals, <laughs> you know, out of the streets uh, you go to a park and there's peacocks and an elephant and you go to the beach and there are camels. Um, so there's, you know, there's just um, everything about the way that I looked and, and, you know, smelled and, um, you know the water tasted different the food tasted different the even the fruits and um vegetables i was familiar with tasted different here so it was it was everything um mm-hmm. you know and um i i in terms of religion that was not something that was immediately apparent to me because i was thinking about all these other things that were extremely different about america um i remember Noticing the diversity of mm-hmm. Americans, um, especially since we when we first came to America, we were in New York. A lot of immigrants used it in New York as like the port to to you know then move somewhere else. So we were in New York for a little bit, and I mean New York City is such a diverse place. And I remember thinking, this is not what I expected. I expected uniform white people, and then and and there was just all these um, you know different sorts of people, and they were speaking different languages. And I remember being surprised by that um, and a little bit intimidated by it too. Um, uh, so the, those were sort of the first, the very, very first things and, and struggling to understand the language um, was just like one of the first battles of like coming to a new country, you know, um, uh, literally being able to understand the people around you is extremely important. But I remember that when that came together in my mind, like one one suddenly, English became something I had just absorbed. Um, and I, when you're young enough, I think you don't really learn it, learn it, or at least I don't remember learning it. I don't remember doing very much uh, to to learn the language. I just absorbed it, like, through osmosis, you know, through my skin. It was just suddenly uh, English was something I knew. And, um, and I remember at that point, uh, my connection to this culture, my connection to Americans... Um, it just like sped down very very quickly, um, and I I became accustomed to to this world very very fast after that. Yeah, um, yeah. Go ahead.
0: I know I know we're going to talk a lot about religion during this conversation, and I think you're probably right for for somebody who is a young girl arriving in a new country. That may not be the first thing on your mind the the precepts of your religious ideology in comparison to those of uh, your new country. But as you got older. And as you spent more time in the U.S., you, you mentioned that your family—I think your father—was a relatively liberal Muslim. What do you remember about, you know, coming into your own and your own evolution and thinking about religion as you, you know, became a teenager, a middle schooler, a high schooler? What's that story in your mind as you tell it now, and in, in reflecting on your growth and evolution towards the beliefs that you hold now?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, as you know the way. It, it's interesting that you phrased it that way. The 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 sort of the the story I tell myself now, because um, it is markedly different from how I was experiencing it um, yeah. and what I thought of my journey as I was as I was leaving faith. Um, it's hard to you know do you know hypotheticals of like what what would have happened had I not come to the United States? Like how would I have experienced religion and and would I have questioned these, these things the way that I had or at the end, at the age that I questioned them? Um, I'd like to think that I would have been a critical thinker anywhere. And there are, of course, lots of, there are lots of atheists and free thinkers in Pakistan, um, in the Muslim world, especially now. Um, but for me, it was, um, it, it, it was, you know, death by a thousand cuts mm. um, that eventually culminated in um, in, in when I was about 15 or 16, around that time, uh, when I started questioning it very deliberately and looking into my religion very deliberately, but even years before then sort of the the seeds of what became my apostasy were already laying and, 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 and thriving, um, just simple things like just encountering people of different belief systems, um, seeing that they were good people, you know, noticing that I, that when they articulated their belief system, um, it made sense to, to a degree you know and and it was even something that I could understand um adopt, why someone would adopt why um why a good person would hold that ethical system. I remember even you know when i was f- from when I was a very young girl at a, in at an age I was probably inappropriate. I was having conversations about religion with like <laughs> you know other girls at school We would be running in gym a track or whatever, and we're talking about our faith and you know where in fifth grade or whatever um, but, I, <laughs> but I remember a lot of the just having a lot of those kinds of conversations mostly with Christians because those were the that was the the, the predominant faith of of the people around me. I don't remember I think I met my first you know Jewish person when I was in high school, so it, it, it was a while um, until I encountered anyone that wasn't really oh that wasn't Christian um, or Muslim, obviously, um, but uh, it, I remember having lots and lots of conversations, even even as a young girl, and all of those did something that I would not have recognized at that moment for what it was. But it, they laid the you know the groundwork for um, the, the broader um, skepticism over you know is this specific path uh, be you know objective truth, yeah, um, and then. Uh, what happened, the, the very explicit thing that happened uh, that I do remember um, was meeting atheists for the first time. Um, and I became friends with a few of them. And some of them began to, um, you know, poke at me and my, my religiosity. And um, we would have these long conversations and they I remember one time um, an atheist friend of mine, he printed, he had just left the, his faith recently. Mm-hmm. So he was in that militant atheist phase of being mm-hmm. really angry. At, yeah, <laughs> sure. And, um, you know, his parents were, I think, um, like evangelicals. Like they were very, very religious. And um, he left the, his faith and then he became a militant atheist and he started trying to uh, poke at everyone else around him. Um, and I remember he gave me like a, a printed list of quotes from the Quran that were extremely offensive, (laughs) you know, just by themselves. Right. Mm. Um, and I remember thinking, this is wrong. You know, what he's saying is wrong. There's a context that explains all this. Um, and then I remember looking it up and the context not only didn't make it better it made it worse (laughs) sometimes, you know, and, and, uh, so, so that was, I remember one of those moments where I thought, um, You know, I I can't support this. And then I also was kind of um, somebody who was evangelizing on my own. I was trying to convince other people to to come and see the light of Islam. And so, in doing so, in trying to convert them, I was doing research on you know their faiths and why they were wrong. You know, why what why you can't trust the the you know, historicity of the Bible, but it turns out that a lot of those same criticisms apply (laughs) very neatly and directly to to Islam um, in the Quran. And so that was a, that was a huge um, uh, part of myself leaving the faith. Um, Yeah. And then, and then there was the, the standard sort of teenage rebellion of, you know, what happens I think to a lot of people who leave the faith, but also, you know, with me, it was coupled with being at a certain age in my life where I was prone to rebellion anyway, um so it was it made for an interesting couple of years for sure
0: <laughs> if you remember any of the points that you know this this atheist friend of yours or just points in general that other people may have made around that time, you know I, I do think Americans are slightly better versed in some of the ideas of Islam than they would have been twenty or thirty years ago, but the counter arguments that these people would made to you that you that resonated with you. If you can remember any of, of those points that were made, what, what were those and, and um, how do you think they, they stuck with you in such a way? It sounds like it was an ethical thing for you.
1: Right. I mean, it, well, it, it was partially an ethical thing. It was, it, it, it was more than that as well, though. Um, uh, I remember I, we, we did a survey of, um, uh, w- with my organization, Expositions of North America, we did a survey of the, the, um, Uh, community members. Um, and we got about 570 something responses and we asked them about what impacted them to, you know, to leave the faith. And, you know, I would encourage your listeners to look up, um, the findings of that, of that survey they're on our website. Um, Mm -hmm. it's called the apostate report. Uh, but there we asked them about, you know, what, what was the most important factor or what was a factor and what was the most important factor, Um, And allowed them to pick between like human rights principles, um, internal contradictions uh, within the Quran, um, uh, contradictions between what uh, Islam says is true about the natural world and what we know through science Mm -hmm. um, and uh, philosophical and logical issues about the existence of God and the problem of evil and that kind of thing. Um, For myself, I remember the latter was very important. Um, and that, that was kind of, I think I could have justified almost any ethical objection in my own mind. If I did believe that the God was real, Mm. um, uh, and he was, uh, as we understood him to be in the sense that, that he was, um, omnipotent and, you know, omniscient. And, you know, if the God was, was both of those two things, I, I felt that my own intellect had to be, you know, and even my own sense of, of ethics and right and wrong had to be submissive to his, mm-hmm. you know, because by definition he knew more and by definition I did not. Um, yeah, so, so I think I, I would have, even though those troubled me, those aspects of the Quran about uh, women's rights and, uh, you know, violence in general, um, they did trouble me. I would have justified them in my own head um, one way or another, I would have jumped through those hoops um, or just said that, look, I, I don't know. And this is something God knows and God understands, but I don't. Mm. Um, so I would have also just relinquished my 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 rationality and reason had I believed that this God was real. Mm. And that's a big you know, that so that's a big if and that's a big condition. Um, so for me, those um, sort of philosophical like standard atheist arguments were very important, you um, uh, uh, to to losing my faith in God. And as a consequence, I then became a non-Muslim. Um, some people go through it the opposite way. Some people mm-hmm. become uh, less Muslim first, you know, they and then they think maybe I'm just sort of a general monotheist and I support, you know, deism or whatever. And then they slowly leave behind religiosity and maybe move, move towards atheism. For me, it was the atheism came first. And then I realized, oh, this means I'm not Muslim anymore.
0: (laughs) Yeah. It sounds like, so if I'm hearing you correctly, the foundational block of a belief in a supernatural God was knocked out first and then everything followed. And then everything followed. Yeah. Yeah. it just
1: tumbled. It just collapsed, right? I mean, there was no, it wasn't even a follow because once that wasn't the, once that was something I had a doubt and, um, everything just felt like a house of cards immediately afterwards.
0: Yeah. It's like the ultimate red pill. Um, (laughs) The arguments that I would be curious to know about that transition specifically for you, because it sounds like that is really the a crucial turning point in your in your thinking and your outlook about life in the world. Prior to changing your mind about capital G God, what had your belief been about such an entity? How would you have described that idea in the first place? And then, what was your what were the arguments that for you really did were sufficient to change that cornerstone belief in your own outlook on, on life and on the universe in general? Hmm.
1: You know, I have a hard time pin- remembering exactly, you know, at what order, which fell and what the, um, cause I'm, t- I'm trying to remember, but it was so long ago now. <laughs> I just remember, I remember the effect Um, I remember browsing random atheist websites, um, for a while and absorbing those arguments. Um, but it's hard to think about like, which exactly was what was what really did it. Um, hmm. I know that the way that I conceived of the God, um, of the Quran was far more liberal than the way that I conceive of the God of the Quran now. Hmm. um and i think that could have just been um the way that i had just absorbed christianity in my you know through my surroundings and i find that that there's kind of an interesting um i mean this is a whole separate discussion but i i i find when i talk to muslims who grew up here in the you know in the united states and also surrounded by uh christians and christianity and spend a lot of time in intellectual circles um that their islam is a little bit christianized Mm. you know like their god is much more loving than than maybe uh, the god is articulated in in um the islam of the muslim world Mm. um but i i i remember thinking of him as as and and, uh, although islam doesn't specify a gender you, you call him him um i i remember thinking of him as compassionate I remember thinking of him as just above all, um, uh, but also uh, unforgiving in a way that uh, the Christian conception of, you know, Christ felt very foreign to me. It, um, and then my God doesn't seem as forgiving. <laughs> um, it's sort of, a, he's sort of an old Testament God almost um, in compares, comparison to Christianity and, um, but I remember thinking that Islam, uh, and, and the way that I was taught it was a way of life in in a, in a very full respect. Um, it wasn't just an ethical belief system. It was a way to orient yourself around the world um, today, you know, the, the modern world today. And so all the ways in which Islam failed to do that as a religion, um, all the ways in which it failed to, to um, thrive in the modern world, given, you know, it's, it's, uh, very specific, um, uh, uh, thoughts about how you should, you know, uh, participate in the world, how you should run your government, how you should organize, you know, uh, even, you know, lending, right. That There's all these specific restrictions that didn't gel in very well with the world. And I remember thinking that, that, uh, that there was a neat package that would help me, uh, Really understand how to move about the world, and when it it became clear that that package was not so neat, um, that was a big um, uh, that was something that shook my faith. Um, I remember specifically looking at the his uh, the the claims about the historicity of the Quran. That was a really big one for me because it was the Quran wasn't written down as, you know, the the, the angel came and revealed things to Muhammad, Muhammad didn't write it down immediately. You know, it wasn't written down for sometimes, you know, like, like for for a long, long time afterwards. Um, And then the way that the Quran was actually compiled was through like scraps and little bits of people remember Muhammad saying this or Muhammad saying that and had written it down. And then, and then it was compiled together like that. And I remember just thinking, what? Like that, (laughs) like, I'm told that this is the literal word of God, and I'm just hoping that someone managed to write it down, write down what Muhammad said exactly word for word as it was. Um, and then these scraps of of, of memories were put, pulled together into the Quran and that that this is something that we are analyzing every word, every, you know, you know, we are, we're analyzing even the order of things to see exactly how we should live our lives. But that doesn't seem to be a very <laughs> um, clear document given the way that it, it, it came forth. Um, so I remember that being um, uh, just something that really made me feel uncomfortable with at least practicing the faith literally, or taking it as a literal truth. Um I remember reading a lot about uh, the, the prophets specifically. I remember um, Christ and his life. Um, and there were Christian, web- like, ex-Christian websites that would have all these takedown arguments of, of Christ and the miracles and all that. And a lot of those apply, actually, pretty directly to the Quran. Some of those miracles don't, but some of them do. Some of the um, the, the way that we conceive of um, what well, who we call uh, prophet Isa, who is Jesus. Um, where this, uh, you know, he lived a similar life, um, up until the end. Mm. So those had an effect as well. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah. To, to a, you know, layman audience that is familiar with Islam superficially, how do you lay out the basics of what that faith is really all about? Right. I mean, if Christianity is the story of the son of God coming to earth and dying on a, on a cross for all of humanity, what is the shorthand description that makes sense to you as to what Islam in its history really is all about and that you think would would help largely a Western audience understand some about its own history and its own its mm-hmm. own goal its own goals
1: mm. <sighs> I don't know if there is I mean, the the focus of Christianity on a person on you know on Christ on his life. Um, I mean, of course, Islam revolves around Muhammad and the um, the Prophet of Muhammad and who he is, but it doesn't center him in the same way. Um, uh, I, I never I never had the same feeling of Muhammad of feeling of of holding him close in my heart the way that I felt Christians um, mm-hmm. felt, you know, in Christ. Um, so I don't, I don't think that relationship is the same at all. Um, I think we feel more, about, you know, the, the Prophet Muhammad is like, uh, you know, a glorified, um, you know, uh, Moses to, the way Moses would be to 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 Jews. So there's, there, he obviously is larger than life and he's this incredible role model of how we should live our lives. Um, but he is, it isn't um, the story of Muhammad, <laughs> you know, the way Christianity sometimes feels like it's the story of Christ. Yep. Um, so there, there isn't a parallel to the two people. Um, I, I would say that first and foremost. Um, but the interesting about Islam is that it, it really feels like a, um, a life system more so than a faith. Um, There's, of course, there's those spiritual elements of it that are very important to Muslims, but there's practical elements of of how you should go about your day to day lives that I don't think is the same with with Christianity. Um, It, uh, you know, Islam has things to say about government, you know, and secularist governments have (laughs) have difficulty justifying themselves in. Um, in Islam for that reason, um, mm-hmm. because Muhammad was um, a statesman. You know, he was a politician. Um, soon after uh, he he started uh, talking about this new faith, um, he, um, he became a political leader. So political leadership, how to run a civilization, you know, a society, um, that was always a part of you know, Islam and Islam's history. Hmm. Um, so it's always been a part of how we conceive of the faith as well as more than a faith, you know, as more than just like this we go on, we go on, it to, you know, to this place on Sunday and we think about ethics, you know, it's more than that. It's about um, all the different elements of your life, um, even your relationships. Um, and Islam helps you um, navigate those, or at least it claims to nav- help you navigate those. Um, so there's aspects of it that kind of feel to me intuitively, almost like an Eastern religion. And this is just a feeling, it's not, you know, literally true, but in the way that, uh, you know, Confucianism helps you specifically understand, you know, day-to-day relationships, it, you know, it's more than just this, you know, transcendent relationship, um, with this deity. Um, Islam kind of feels like, it, handbook to life <laughs> yep. you know you see what I mean that yeah um, so it's it's practical the Quran is practical
0: yeah and more con more comprehensive potentially in, in its specificity
1: certainly yeah yep. certainly
0: I, you you mentioned this word earlier um, apostasy and I would I would be interested in knowing for yourself as you begin you know to critically analyze your own upbringing, and then eventually deciding to to leave. I think it's well known in the West that uh, there tends to be a different relationship between ex-Muslims and current Muslims, and ex Christians and current Christians. Obviously, there that's often a contentious relationships in in both directions. But you know, people are are often murdered for leaving Islam. And especially for those who speak out against it, was that even on your mind when you decided as a young woman that this was a um an ideology a, a religious framework that no longer made sense to you that that was a risk you were potentially taking, or was that so far from where you were that it I didn't, didn't even really know matter? of it <laughs> yeah
1: I didn't yeah. even know it <laughs> that was just it, it was, that's how far it was from my mind that i I didn't even know um What happens? Um, uh, And I didn't know anyone personally who was an ex-Muslim ever, or at Mm -hmm. least I thought I didn't know anyone. Later, after I came out publicly about leaving my faith, there or other people in my life that said, "Well, I don't really believe anymore." Um, But that that only happened years after I had thought that you know I don't believe. Um, But it's just it was such a foreign concept, um, apostasy in general. Um, The atheists that I knew in my life were all from, uh, you know, various Western faiths, um, first Christianity. But then I, I, I began to know people from Jewish faith, too, who were, you know, Jewish, but they didn't believe in God kind of thing. Um, and um, I didn't know anybody who was ex-Muslims specifically. And so this was something I had to navigate on my own. Um, and I found it... Um, you know, at first I was just naive about the realities of, of apostasy, just all I was consumed with was how messed up it was. I almost used another word, but yeah, how, how messed up it was that, um, we, you know, me, my family, my parents, my, you know, my loved ones have been, you know, torturously following this, this belief system Revolving our r- lives around it, um, shaping our future around it, and it turns out that it wasn't you know that it doesn't have the the the, the claims to truth that that I thought it did. I mean it just the I remember feeling angry yeah. um and that anger consumed me for a very long time um and thinking of nothing else. um so the fear, which is sort of a very different emotion, and I think fear you can feel more. More holy when, when the anger kind of cools down. Um, but at least in the first couple of years, I felt um, that it, this religion had robbed me of something, and it had robbed my family of something. And then I became, it became clear to me that all these, all these things that I had accepted as this is how the world works, this is how I'm going to get married, this is how my husband will be, and this is how we will raise our children, and. You know, even the specifics of how I ate, what I ate, how I dressed, what I what I wore, um, uh, how I related to the opposite sex, which was a very, you know, it's a very key and important part of, of becoming a young adult. All of that was, you know, revolved around this faith mm-hmm. and, you know, uh, was held down by this faith. And now that that those restrictions I felt were unjust or just based off on nonsense... Um, I began to feel very angry that they still applied to me in my life because I was a young woman in a Muslim household. Right. So Mm. I I still had to dress the way Muslims dress. I still had to live my life in that way because I was in, uh, uh, I was in the the surroundings and I slowly, uh, I slowly had had conversations with my parents that helped them understand my path but like many ex-Muslims, I lived a double life for a very long time. Um, I didn't tell them the extent to which I had really left behind, not just Islam as the faith, but the lifestyle of a Muslim. Mm. Um, so there was there was this sort of deception. I mean, that's the, the honest truth um, for a very long time. And I think that helped ease the transition of me leaving the faith to my parents, because I think that if they had known of the way that I was going to live my life, they would be a lot more—I I wouldn't say abusive as a term—but I think they they would have felt that more, you know, uh, measures had to be taken to to save me from from this this life. Um, a lot of ex-Muslims have. You know, experience this in various ways where parents, especially immigrant parents, will say, Now it's time to go back home. You know, this, our child has been corrupted by the Western world and we're going back mm-hmm. to Egypt, back to wherever. So that was in my, on, on the back of my mind that my parents could just one day decide that they didn't want to be here. They didn't want their children to be around these corrupt influences or, or even, f- even for me, if I had already been corrupted to be able to live out my life in such a way, to be free enough in this society to do it. Um, whereas in Pakistan, I couldn't get away with it in the same way. Um, it, that was always, um, something I thought about, um, and w- it felt real to me. Um, uh, of course it's, you don't know, um, because I never, I never really told them the full th- truth of how I was living my life. Um, uh, but that was a big issue. There was, um, on a more extended level, once the word got out about my apostasy, um, in my extended family, my Parents began to receive a lot of pressure to take care of the problem of, you know, of me, you know, like to take to fix me somehow, um, and uh, they themselves began to be ostracized from the community um, to various degrees, and that still continues, you know, on to this day um, that they are uh, treated in this. Uh, you know, stigmatized fashion, and they just don't have anything to do with parts of the community anymore. Um, uh, and that's because they refuse to treat me more harshly. Mm. Um, and so, I, I do feel very lucky that my parents did not—they they weren't the threat to me. And that's the case with a lot of ex-Muslims. So, there's obviously the you know, terrorists out there, um, but they're going to find you if you if you began to speak about religion. Right. I mean, but as so long as you're a private person, you're living your life, really the threat to you is your family members, unfortunately, um, and then your extended community. Um, and I was lucky there that I didn't have to fear them. Once I started to speak out about the faith, however, um, that changed um, in in the sense that the pressure uh, that my parents began to feel was a lot more intense and I began to fear for their safety, um, like, you know, as just extensions of me. Um, so then they had to live their lives differently as well, the, the way I have to live my life slightly differently because I worry about um, the security aspects of being like an open apostate um, and, and, and not just an open one, but a very public one and a very visible one. Um, so, you know, my, my parents can't go to Pakistan. <laughs> their, their own family, their own siblings have told them, don't come, it's dangerous for you. Um, so it, it, it's these sorts of things and it's tragic because they have family there that they'll, they'll never see again. Um, and it's, it's, you know, my fault, right? It's, it's the choices that I've made um, that now restrict their lives, um, in this extra way. Um, yeah, but, but there's the obvious, um, the big change in my life happened when I began to be more open about my apostasy and, and when I founded, um, or co-founded Ex Muslims of North America. Mm -hmm. And at that point, um, that was, that was a real shift in, in, um, my relationship also with the faith, Um, there was just like, this is just a system that's untrue to, this is a system that is untrue and it is, um, you know, it's a danger to myself and the people around me in a very visceral, real, you know, way. Um, and you know, I, I, it, you can't help, but feel a little bit more, you know, antagonistic towards, um, you know, a religious group that, that, that does this. Um, so yeah, that's been, um sort of the growth of of hostilities as you know faced by an apostate.
0: Yeah. I I had uh, Wilfred Riley on my show about a month ago and he wrote a book about t- taboos and the book is essentially about American taboos but I think the general point that he makes about taboos is taboos and censorship tend to be put in place not to protect strong arguments from criticism but to protect weak arguments. From criticism, it's it's a, it's essentially a move in order to prevent mm-hmm. any criticism from being introduced because the edifice is so weak. Mm-hmm. Um, I would love to talk to you about that moment for yourself. Where, if I heard you correctly, you didn't know any ex-Muslims when you were younger, no. and then yeah. you decide to go and make this public. I'm sure, with full knowledge that uh, there is at least some serious risk here of. Yeah taking your life in this direction why did this matter enough for you and what was your reasoning just internally to yourself as to why you wanted to do this with your life
1: Mm um i have always been kind of an activist (laughs) you know like uh you know as a young person i was always just you know motivated to uh you know as i said i was evangelizing like or to 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 Christians that I knew about my faith and trying to uh, trying to get them to see the light from that perspective, even though you know I'm a I'm a minority in this country and here I am preaching about my foreign religion. <laughs> um, you know, and even after 9-11, which changed the atmosphere quite a bit um, in, in terms of how Muslim Americans felt um, in America, in their in their place in American society, which they just felt more vulnerable. Um, that didn't stop me, um, from talking about it, um, and, and trying to get people to see the light of my faith. Um, uh, I guess it's, I feel very privileged. Um, I feel lucky that I'm in, uh, I'm in the United States. I feel lucky that I've the upbringing that I had. Um, it, it was, it was, just enough religiosity to get me to see how it can, you know, really devastate a life or restrict someone's life so much that it you know, distorts it into something completely different than what they would have chosen on their own. Um, but just free enough that that I, I could I could escape. Um, and a lot of ex-Muslims just simply don't have this. And it became very clear to me as I as I started to meet other ex-Muslims and find other ex-Muslims that I was extremely privileged with my experience that I, I was never really, I never really worried that my, my, my father would kill me. You know, I was never concerned about that. Maybe he would take me back to Pakistan. That was real, but um, not that he would hurt me. Um, And it was just uh, when I fully reckoned with the fact that other ex-Muslims were not in this boat, um, even in the West, um, it felt to me that, you know, if you happen to be lucky enough to, to have an easier life, then it's your duty to, to try and create that life for others. Um, and so, when, when I started to to work on, you know, uh, Ex-Muslims in North America and very clear, uh, quickly recognized that initially what we were doing, which was community building, was just not enough. We had to speak out publicly. Um, I remember there was a point where I looked at the life of Ayan Hirsi Ali. And she was the only other ex-Muslim that I had even heard of at that time, like in the public space. Um, And I remember thinking, I remember this in my mind. I remember thinking, I don't want her life, you know, like Mm -hmm. I don't want to run for the rest of my life. I don't want to worry about my loved ones. I don't I don't want this. And it almost made it worse that she was there, that someone had done it before. Yeah, in a way. And I could see exactly what happened to her. And I, you know, it it would be one thing if I just optimistically just followed that path without knowing exactly where it would take me. But with Ayan, with her example, um, there's people have asked me, like, did she inspire you? i mean, like, in a way, (laughs) but the way that she was treated, like what she met at the, uh, you know, at the end of her public apostasy was something that I was like, I, I don't want to, I don't want to live that way, you know? And it's, it's almost um, like you escape religion and, you know, you, you live your life in this restricted way. Um, and you find this freedom to be yourself, to, to be public, to feel free. And then, and then you come out as an apostate and you're restricted again. You know, you, now you can't travel in certain places. Now you can't be open about certain things. Now you have to be careful about, you know where you go and what you do and it it feels like going back into that restricted space but hmm. but this time it was by choice you know but th- this time i wasn't you know born into it it was it's it's something that i i chose to do so it does feel different um from that perspective
0: yeah and to give i want to give the audience a little bit of background there it, it, along with some other historical points that might be helpful for people to um recognize how serious this is so there are a few things I want to mention one is the Salman Rushdie affair in the late 80s where he published a book called the Satanic Verses which subsequently led to a fatwa being issued against him which is essentially a death sentence um instructions from the leader of Iran to kill him um you know in the 2000s there was the Danish cartoonist who published um satirical as i remember satirical cartoons of the prophet muhammad which caused deaths around the world and no american publishers would print out of fear out, would print those images except for free inquiry magazine mm. which is the magazine of of the center for inquiry i i happened to to work there a few years after they they did that there was the charlie abdo affair in paris um <clears throat> where I think something like 12 people were killed. And I read Ion Hirsi Ali's book as well, Infidel, which is a terrific book. And one of the most poignant moments in the book is her telling of the story of beginning to make a documentary about her life that was, if I remember correctly, critical of Islam with, of all people, <clears throat> Vincent van Gogh's distant relative, Theo van Gogh. The name of that documentary was called Submission, and it was publicly going to be criticizing Islam and aspects of Islamic culture. And he was murdered and brought, Theo Van Gogh was murdered in broad daylight with a knife stuck in his back and a note attached to it saying, "Ayon Hirsi Ali, you're next. She was a member of their parliament, I believe, at that time and fled to the West, which I think is what you're alluding to, that she has been on the run for a lot of her adult life. And I want to just set the table there for to give some context for her story and to just provide some historical facts that I think bolster your concern that this is serious. And there are people out there who are willing to inflict serious violence against people who are, are critical of islamic faith and i remember just personally when i was living in in buffalo when i was working for the center for inquiry which owns free inquiry magazine and they published the um the cartoons at at that at that magazine there was a a couple in suburban buffalo at that time and they owned a television station their goal was to try to introduce, you probably remember this story. The the goal was to try to introduce a more modern version of Islam to a Western audience. And if I remember correctly, the wife was no longer happy in the marriage and wanted to get a divorce. And the husband essentially enacted an honor killing and in a gruesome manner, essentially decapitated her. Um, these are a few examples of many that I think shed just bolster your your claim that this is this is a dangerous field to go into for anybody who is so inclined. And I wanna I wanna talk to you about why you think there is such concern. Or I mean, it's very. This has happened to Ion Herseli. I've seen this happen to her for years now. She begins to point out um her criticisms of the way women are treated in so many Muslim cultures in the limits of free speech and you know liberal values that are the bedrock of America and Western civilization and many people have no problem immediately calling her a racist or um, anti-muslim. you know, how, how do you make sense of that? immediate move. It would seem to me that in the better angels of Western civilization, we could walk and chew gum at the same time. Mm -hmm. We would be able to realize that what we're really concerned about are the ideas. And we have a deep love for Muslims as people, and we can orchestrate conversations that are oriented in that manner to try to make a more just, humane world for people who are not particularly uh, you know well versed on muslim civilization and muslim countries when there is such a reaction to people like you to people like Hir- I on Ali who are publicly criticizing components of islam that to my eyes are uh, you know barbaric and don't seem to have a place in the world in 2022 they certainly wouldn't be welcomed in most American households and, and, um, families, what do you, first of all, what are, what are some of those practices that are going on in Muslim cultures that you find so objectionable ethically? Mm -hmm. And why do you think there is such resistance to shedding light on those components of, of life for Muslims? Now, why are people so, so worried? Mm -hmm. Um, about, you know, changing, changing these institutions, changing these belief structures?
1: Yeah, those are both of those questions are big ones. Um, I will try to keep my answer somewhat (laughs) (laughs) brief. Um, As to the first, um, what practices, you know, specifically that I think are uh, toxic or harmful, um, that the religion needs? Either formally, you know, promotes or 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 you know accepts um, as as part of the faith. I mean, they they run the gamut um, from human rights. Uh, issues, specifically when it comes to women's rights, I mean, Islam is a gendered religion in that in, in order to be a good Muslim woman, you behave, there are different ways that God wants you to behave um, than if you're a, a good Muslim man. Um, Islam formally gives uh, men the right to discipline their wives and, um, uh, and this is not 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 hadn't hadn't been contested at all by anyone until Western, um, you know, uh, you know academics and activists pointed it out um, until the sort of the West met the East, um, and at that point some Muslims began to you know uh, you know taper down a little bit on 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 the how much uh, that. It allows um, husbands um, in, in service of this disciplining. Um, but it, it's, it's, it's formally uh, an acceptance of domestic abuse, you know, of domestic violence. Um, women do not have, you know, simple rights, like the right to divorce that is, you know, clear and equal to a man. So in, in Islam, uh, a man can say, I divorce you three times and you're divorced. Uh, but if a woman wants a divorce, uh, she has she can formally request it from her husband. He can decline. Uh, at that point, she can go to a religious leader and request it there. Um, and if the religious leader accepts, then she can she can uh, get a divorce. But you see, just the differences in in treatment and rights and simple basic rights. Um, uh, islam doesn't the woman doesn't have uh custody of her children after i think it's the age of six um the children belong to to the father at that point um so there's a, a very explicit um you know uh, uh, issues when it comes to islam that 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 in some countries they are very literally practiced um inheritance laws are extremely unequal uh, women do not have the right to you know a daughters do not have the right to equal inheritance um in many countries this is a, this is enacted into law in bangladesh i remember when my friends close friends had had an issue with this or when her father uh, she, uh her her brother died and her she her, she was the only uh, child of her father um and he found out that she wasn't she was going to have difficulty inheriting all of his uh estate that he would have to give um, a generous portion to male cousins, um, uh, and it, it, so, so that it's a very real thing. Even in more secularized countries like Bangladesh, in countries like Saudi Arabia, you have very literal interpretations of uh, of guardianship laws of um, Islamic precepts that that say that that a woman should not travel um certain distances without a male guardian without a male like protector um which is uh, has to be her brother um her father um uh, or her husband um but these uh, these restrictions play out in the lives of saudi women and so that you know it, they they can't leave the country <laughs> without um permission from from a father and uh, and so it, it varies in Muslim countries to what degree the the specifically the the um, inequalities of women in Islamic practice play out. But they're always pulling in one direction. Right. I mean, it's not Islam isn't granting women any kinds of rights. Um, Islam is taking them away. Um, and We know a lot about the about the hijab, for example, um, enforced hijab in Iran and in 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 Afghanistan and in Saudi Arabia, but I think the, the lesser-known aspects of it, also like inheritance laws and and um, custody rights, also um, have an incredibly um, uh, you know it, c- complex. But it's just uh, a, the superstructure of gender in- inequality that affects Muslim women um, all across the board, and that's one aspect of like the human rights. Uh, 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 harms that I think that I, that I can speak to, but obviously there's restrictions, um, that impact, um, uh, gays and lesbians, um, and anyone really who wants to live their, their lives in a gender non-conforming way. Um, uh, but it, it the human rights issues are one, uh, there's the, the, um, the way that Islam views uh, freedom of expression um, and freedom of belief um, in which Islam is a religion that is uh, in a Muslim society should be granted, um, you know, a a superior status to other faiths. This plays out in in Muslim culture in various ways. Um, Minorities are heavily stigmatized, persecuted, um, in danger really for their lives. Um, in in many Muslim countries, um, this has an effect on freedom of speech. Um, and you know of the, what the the cases that you mentioned of of Charlie Hebdo, of of the Danish cartoons, of um, Salman Rushdie. That it, it, these restrictions of of what you can what you can criticize, what you can mock, even apply to. To non-Muslim Muslim countries, where Muslims taking upon themselves to say that this cannot happen anywhere in the world, um, where we take part, um, there's general effects on uh, on on society as a whole, on how you st- structure, um, you know, a secular government, on how uh, what what kind of liberal uh, uh, rights. You make grants to citizens that has an effect on, you know, scientific inquiry. It has an effect on, you know, artistic expression. It has an effect on um, technological progress. Um, And so, there's there's very specific literal harms that we can talk about. And then there's the broader effects on civilization that accepts Islamic uh you know understanding the world as as a correct way to live your lives and and you see this in Muslim Muslim countries that have a very difficult time uh, meeting the challenges of the modern world and you know gaining a foothold in the the prosperity that that the rest of the world enjoys um, and that is not due to a lack of talent and intelligence you know of, of Muslim people it is due to the fact that it is artificially suppressed um, in a variety of ways, almost all of which can be, uh, can be pointed back to um, belief in this faith. Um, so that's my, that's my answer to that one question.
0: <laughs> yeah. But,
1: but the other one that um, you pointed out as to why we have difficulty uh, in the West uh, with someone like Ayan Hirsi Ali. I mean, that's, there's a lot to that. I think there's the, the simple answer of we have in our, uh, conception of what tolerance looks like. Mm-hmm. It means, um, it, it means in a very simplistic, in a simpli- in simplistic sense, um, acceptance, uh, unquestioning, uncritical acceptance, um, and kind of a condescending, uh, allowance to other cultures, you know, that, that certain practices can happen there and who are we to judge, uh, I mean, I even had the "Who are we to judge?" Uh, response when it came, comes to FGM. You know, from a gender studies professor, I remember it to this day. Um, uh, it, w- when this woman who was so learned in 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 you know uh, f- f- women's rights, female empowerment, um, and, and I remember her saying to me, "Who are we to judge?" Um, when it came to to uh, cutting girls um, genitals in such a way that they could not experience sexual pleasure. And I remember thinking that uh, there, there's a point where of which tolerance becomes in itself, uh, uh, you know, it becomes uh, it undoes itself if it Mm. doesn't have any principles to more itself down to. And if those principles, you know, I think we're cutting out. Can you still hear me? I can. Yeah. Okay, I think my my recording is messed up because you're. I can barely hear you.
0: Okay, um, turn that up. I can hear yeah, you just but, fine. Uh, okay. Um. <laughs> um.
1: Yeah. It's, so it, it, I remember that that FGM issue really, really um, uh, shook me. Um, that I I couldn't understand how anyone could justify it, and I remember thinking that our we have to revisit what we think of as tolerance, um, and we have to revisit. Um, how we approach, um, you know, issues of, of, uh, of um, you know, how, how to live together with other countries in a way that we're not, well, we're not imposing our values, we're not justifying war, we're not justifying aggression, but at the same time being able to hold our own and say, well, we, th- we think this is right. Um, and we think these values should be shared, you know, across the world. Um, and I, it, it, we just have trouble with this. Um, some of it is due to just like not, wa- not wanting more aggression in Muslim societies. And that's a very good, uh, like that's, that's something I agree with. I don't think, you know, military action wins hearts and minds. I don't think it'll change the Muslim world. It certainly hasn't. In Iraq, it certainly hasn't done Afghanistan any favors. Um, uh, but I, I, I also think there's something deeper going on in the Western world that is unconnected to this issue. Um, there is um, a, I would, not to put too, not, not to be too extreme about it, but I, I think there is a, a rot in um, Western intelligentsia. Um, there is, a, a, you know, an undoing of, of enlightenment values that, you know, there's a project that is currently underway um, and we can see it affect a um, hundred different avenues of of re- relating to culture, and we can see it play out um, where where we even look back to uh, our own history and we demonize it um, uh, in a way that is not. I mean, it's one thing to look back in history with clear eyes and say that this is these are the injustices we visited upon others, um, and it's another to look back and 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 see nothing but evil and and. And, contempt, um, and you know, so I, I could go on about this for a very, very long time. And it's kind of been my focus um, more recently has been has been investigating what exactly is going on here, that in the West, it, it, even saying something like I support enlightenment values is coded as conservative or right wing. You know, I mean, what does that yeah. even how, how can that be true? What does that mean? And what has what has led us to this point? Um, and I think it's 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 a it's a very deep problem. I think it's rooted in a lot of different kinds of movements um even legal structures um Islam is just the treatment of islam is just uh, a symptom of of what's going on um here but I think that we have a, a a fight ahead of us um you know and i and one that I feel very powerfully like inclined to to participate in i mean this is a country and uh, civilization that gave me rights and freedoms that i couldn 't have imagined um, you know anywhere else and and it 's shocking and unnerving and uh upsetting to see uh, this civilization which has been a hope to people like me and continues to be a hope that that you know maybe one day Pakistan will be like'll be as free as the west to have people then denigrate the project of of uh, you know the, the kinds of liberal values that the West the modern West rests upon, um, and to see that being uh, like slowly being um, uh, you know chipped away, um, the foundations of it being chipped away is um, you know deeply upsetting um, because the project of of moving the rest of the world to the West is an important one, but what if there's no West to move to, right? Like, what if, what if the West uh, manages to, to disempower itself in such a way that it cannot, it cannot understand its own values, much less champion them anywhere else? Um, yeah, so that's, <laughs> I could go on about it for a very, very long time, but yeah. I think there's a bigger problem here.
0: I think you hit the nail on the head, and I think rot is a good way to put it. Um, You know, the FGM, just for listeners, is female genital mutilation. You know, I think what you're getting at is the 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 belief these days that seem to be held by a lot of the energy and the intelligentsia that um, of cultural relativism, and it is such an odd thing to witness as somebody who is outside of that world, the allegiance between feminist. You know, professorials, intelligentsia, and you know, Muslim dictators who are, I think it's objective to say this, who are suppressing female equality. Those are that's a very odd dynamic to be witnessing in real time. Um, and I think I said this before we started recording that even though what is happening in Russia with Russia and Ukraine is not a religious war it it has been somewhat heartening to me to witness mm-hmm. a clarifying effect on at least the leadership and i think the populace as well of western countries in snapping back into focus of what 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 it is about our civilizations that are so precious and have been so hard won over so many centuries and the miracle that despite all of our flaws and the the horrendous history in many ways, the liberties that have been granted to people um, who live here. I know we're getting short on time, and so I wanna I wanna close first just by saying how much I respect what you do and admire what you do, and I think I speak for a lot of people in saying that, um, because I know you're aware of the fact that this is not uh, without its dangers, as we have talked about, and. I think you're right, I feel similarly in terms of the the privilege to be able to do um work like this and to host conversations like this because I think they really matter. I'd love to talk to you about the future. You said earlier that we have a fight on our hands or a battle on our hand on our hands, and we certainly we certainly do um as the leader of this organization, as the co founder, what do you feel would be or think would be? success in your career. You know, what what are your hopes and goals for how ideas can spread, conversations like this can be shared. Just in general, the uh, you know, the the if I'm hearing your story correctly, it's it, it sounds like what you would like to have happened is to have girls like yourself have the opportunities and freedoms that you did mm-hmm. fundamentally. And mm-hmm. as you think and forecast into the future, how do you think about that project what are what is there to be optimistic about what what is there what are the seemingly insurmountable um, yeah. obstacles if they're and I know they're numerous that that you see clearly that need to be faced
1: yeah I mean the project that I'm focused on now is to is to help to do what i can to to help others understand the importance of of the values and uh, and you know freedoms that that not only like you know girls in the Muslim world just haven't they haven't even reached uh, they can't even aspire to at the moment you know but to to at at least uh, get the West to remember that these are things worth fighting for yeah. and these are things worth being you know proud of to the degree that anyone can be should be proud of. Uh, the the accident of birth, right? But but to 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 champion it, and also understand that it is your duty to some degree to champion it. Um, you know, it feels like to me that the the, the the many people in the West, especially many young people, um, you know, my age younger, um, they don't know what it is like to live in any other kind of time. You know, young women especially, they they have been granted. Um, a lot of freedoms in the West. And I don't know if they can really um, intuitively know what it is like to not have uh, certain things. And I think that's part of the reason that we see sort of this youth movement that feels very anti-enlightenment in in, in a lot of ways. And I think that's uh, part of the reason is that they don't know what it is that they're risking. They don't know what it is uh, to live without Certain guarantees and certain freedoms, they are uh, pushing back against what they feel to be, uh, you know, the oppressor. Um, you know, you know, pushing back, say, against freedom of of, of speech because uh, because big, bigotry exists that can be spoken. You know, uh, without understanding that that it is in fact freedom of speech that guaranteed them, you know, the rights that they have. Um, at the moment that, that allowed them to, to argue and to convince and, you know, persuade, and then eventually get into law, the kinds of uh, protections that, that they don't even think about anymore. You know, they don't have to worry about anymore. So it, it, my, my project at the moment is to try and, and, and do what I can to to educate some of these people um, and to, um, organize those of us who see the problem and, uh, and, and might want to do something about it. Um, so that's, that's something that I've been, I've been thinking about a lot in the future. And that's something that I'm currently focused on to whatever degree we can. And I think that what we, you know, when I say the fight is still ahead of us, I, I really mean that, that the enlightenment project has been so neglected because it won, right. I mean, there's yep. it's sort of the fruit fruits of its successes were that were that people were allowed to forget about it yeah. um, uh, and now we're in a state where even our our, our major institutions no longer value this so it, although it may seem that you know there's a david and goliath situation but the goliath is is um the enlightenment norms it is actually i think the opposite in a way um that- these enlightenment norms have sort of di- uh, disappeared into the background no one values them anymore and indeed the 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 major institutions of this country and even even the civilization um are are actively working to to um you know dismantle them um to uh you know denigrate them as values even um so it, i think we have to start organizing (laughs) Hmm. um and it's just shaping up i think this movement of people who are just even becoming concerned that there is a problem and recognizing that something's wrong so i think we're in the early stages of this uh reorganization as to my part with ex-muslims in north america i'm going to do what i can to highlight not just to work for for um, uh, the rights of Muslims and uh, ex-Muslims to dissent against their religion, um, but to use that as an example of helping Westerners understand that there's something to fight for here um, and what it looks like, what a world looks like without, without these, these norms and, and guarantees.
0: Yeah, I think that is a life worth living. Um, and Sarah, I just want to say before we close off, like, th- thank you very much for, for doing this and, and taking the time to have this conversation I know I said this earlier, but I, I have a ton of respect for what you and your your coworkers are doing, and I wish you a ton of luck in in that endeavor. I think it's it's worthy of your time and energy.
1: Thank you, thank you, Dan. Um,
0: thanks for doing this, and um, go kick thanks some. Thanks for blood. having
1: me. <laughs> My pleasure. This is great. Thanks.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Keep Talking. If you're finding value in this podcast, please consider supporting the show via the links below on Venmo, PayPal, or Patreon. Your support helps to make these conversations possible.